My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. When we think of our life with the Messiah, what, what comes to mind? Well, we should recognize that he is, he is our life. Without him, you know, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We have the foretaste of, of the blessings. We have fellowship. We have just the joy, the, a heart that loves the scripture. All because of Messiah? What's that? All because of Messiah? All because of Messiah. Yeshua, Messiah, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, yo. Wednesday, April 24th, 2019. Happy Passover, everybody. This is Messiah Matters number 261. Realizing that matzah donuts are just not the same as the real thing. My name is Caleb Hag. And loving the salmon and cream cheese all over matzah as being, like, really good. good. I'm Rob good. Vanoff. Sounds good. <laughs> I could get behind that. I could get behind that. What up, everybody? What up? Hello to everybody in happy, the chat room. Yeah. Happy Pesach. Happy Chag HaMatzot. Do you have a good Seder? Yeah. What'd you guys do? A lot of people or what? We had two, we had two firstborns. Okay, so when we're, we're in the middle of this story, and I never thought about this before because I'm like a number five. Yeah. I never thought of it like from this angle. But my nephew's like, all of a sudden it like a light went on and he's like, man, if I was there, I'd be like, Dead. Okay, guys, it's the 10th of the month. <laughs> Today we're getting that lamb, you know? And then it's like, and like, we're going to make sure we're going to slaughter this thing, you know? We're going to put that blood on the, you know? Because it's the firstborn that are like, their life's on the line, you know? That was really cool. Um, uh, anyway. How about uh -oh. you? Uh-oh. Oh. Look at this. What's up? We have our first super chat of the show by Mr. Hans. Hans, thank you very much. Cool. And let's start out the right way with uh, giving a good old blessing to Hans. You've been blessed. I'm getting double. I'm getting something doubled up on my. Let's take that out. Mm. I wonder if I need this out. Hang on just a sec. I'm going to try something with my. Uh, okay. I think I can hear everything still. So. Yes. Okay. Well, we are in the middle of Passover reviews, as we have already said. You know, we, we titled this show, what did we title it? What is the gospel? Now, um, this show probably should have a one of two after it or a one of three after it or something like that, because I don't think we're getting to, getting to it all today. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, before we, before we go on, I'm sorry, I jumped the gun because of, of the wonderful blessing of Hans in the chat room, but for, for let's go back for just a second. I want to say that I, I too had a wonderful Passover Seder. You know, I, last year I put together a, uh, Haggadah, which is, uh, means a, a, like a, the order of the Passover. I put together a Haggadah for believers of, of Messiah Yeshua. So I took some of the traditions out. 
um, trying to make it a little bit more conducive for, for young children. And I put in more uh, more apostolic scriptures and uh, kind of fo- I tried to follow a little bit of how Yeshua's meal would have gone at his last supper. Cool. So we used that um, and uh, and it was it was very good. We had fewer people than we had last year. We only had 21 people at our table. And, which is still a lot of people. And, uh, you know, we got guys in our congregation that are just amazing uh, cooks. We have one gentleman who is probably one of the best meat smokers on the, uh, on the West Coast of, of the U- USA. And then we got another guy who, if, he wasn't, uh, if his profession wasn't plumbing, I'm quite confident that he could be the head chef in a uh, five-star Michelin-starred restaurant. He's, he's that good. And cool. uh, then there's me, which d- nothing, no, no skills at all. But I called my good friend Adam and asked him how I should, uh, how I, how I should cook some lamb. So anyway, we did lamb three ways. We had it smoked, we had it barbecued, and we had it slow roasted. And uh, I gotta say, all three were very good. We just had a lovely time. It was, it was fantastic. And and. Uh, after everybody left, everybody, I think the last person left our house maybe about 11 o'clock. Kids went to sleep. Wife went to sleep. And uh, we, uh, we then, I then stayed up and uh, read and prayed and just had a great time alone with the Lord until about 2.30 in the morning. Finally went to sleep. And uh, it was great. We just had a wonderful, wonderful time. So, um, yeah, happy. It's, it's my favorite holiday. Passover is by far my favorite holiday. I love it. I love it. I'm it's, glad you well, had a and good it's sale. tied. Another reason I love it. It's well, like all the feasts, and the the fall feasts, of course, mirror our reflection of the spring feasts. But it's all tied together. Counting the Omer, well, you were right. Pesach, Matzah, counting to the Omer and Shavuot or Pentecost. It's all like one, one giant awesome meditation you know it's an extended it's the gospel message it's the liturgy of our life yeah exactly it is the gospel message this is my body that's what yeshua said right um okay so with that said oops what am i doing here sorry i'm all over the place today um so there's a couple of things that we should probably uh, touch on now i want to touch on this we we touched on this in show 70 show 70 so almost 200 episodes ago. Isn't that amazing that we're at 261? Wow, anyway, yeah. almost 200 That's episodes awesome. ago, we, we touched on this. I've been emailed twice by this, and I saw it on Facebook, too. And this is the old, same old argument. Uh, this comes back to the chronology debates, which I cannot believe are still going on. Um, even within within good scholarship, I think that there's a resolution that has come about uh, it's taken it's taken two thousand years, but they find you know scholarship has finally come to a resolution on the chronology of the Passion Week, and how to how to align. Uh, the you book. know, a good question though on that. Have have you looked at any reviews of Brant Petrie's work? Like, is there is there anybody? Because you said scholarship is settled, and I think it I think it seems like like who could who would like push back? But I to be fair, I haven't looked. Like at any of the, like the peer review of Dr. Petrie's argument. So um, the uh, w- scholarship is never settled. That I mean, right? That's hyperbole. 
right? Right. Scholarship is never settled on anything. So there's always people who are going to push back. But the big hitters are the ones who that I think of when you think of like the Johan. So for those, let's let's break this down. We've done it every year. Let's break it down one more time. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have what seems to be a different account than John. Okay, so within the four Gospels, you have one account here and one account here. And, and scholars arch- have been talking about that for over 100 years. For, for over 2,000 two, years. 2,000 years. I mean, ever since, ever, well, I shouldn't say that, 1,800 years. Ever since the second century, you started to have these these different debates. And the Quattrodeciman debate in the second century was, well, wh- whether or not it was second or third century. Anyway, um, this whole thing, this is what kind of brought it all about. But the point is, is that you have what seems like a different account. The synoptics seem to place Yeshua's Last Supper on Nisan 14 and his death on Nisan 15, which would be a festival Sabbath. And then there's an argument that, no, John says that he was slaughtered when the lambs were slaughtered on Nisan 14. And it wasn't a Sabbath yet. And there's all these different arguments why. I think there's five or six places within John that people go to that they say this is exactly, you know, this is this shows that it wasn't a, a Last Supper. Good. Now, let's take this out of the Facebook realm and out of the Hebrew Roots realm and the Messianic realm. And let's put it into the scholarly debate. Within the scholarly debate, there's there's really three main hypotheses on, on why. Uh, that is until my father and Brant Petrie, separate from each other, came up with the same conclusion, which is that there's actually a fourth, which Brent, Dr. Brant Petrie calls the Passover hypothesis. I hold to the Passover hypothesis, and I think that most people who have read Dr. Petrie's work hold to it as well, because it lines everything up very well. My, father's, my father had the same uh, theory. Um, anyway, basically... The fact is that, no, they do line up well, and they line up perfectly. Now, you have people who held to the Johannine hypothesis. You had people who held to the synoptic hypothesis. And you had people who held to the Essene hypothesis. People who held to the Johannine hypothesis said John was a better witness because he was actually there, and therefore his account is correct. The synoptics are following a different tradition, and they got it wrong. So basically, you're pitting the scriptures against each other. Right. And this is one... Okay, we'll talk about that in a second. The synoptic hypothesis is the opposite from the Johannine hypothesis, which is that the synoptics are correct, and that the uh, and that John is, for theological reasons, trying to place the, the slaughter of the animals at the same time as the crucifixion of the Messiah, and therefore he pushes it back a day for theological reasons, and therefore, John is actually historically incorrect, however, theologically correct. Okay? And then there's the Essene hypothesis, which is that Yeshua and his followers were on a different calendar. They were on a Essene calendar, and that both are correct. Um, which I think is pretty easy to refute. We, we pretty much know that this is not the case. I would say that I think... Most scholarship would agree that that's not the case. Okay, now with all that said, the Passover hypothesis has come and said, no, we just need to understand the language that Paul or that John is using against the synoptics. They actually line up perfectly. Okay, so you do have really good scholars who are who have really studied this, who 
believe in the jo- Johannine hypothesis. Scholars like Craig Keener. Craig Keener held to the Johannine hypothesis, and he was a very loud voice in, in it. And he has told me personally, I asked him, do you still hold to the Johannine hypothesis? After you read, because he, he did a review of, of Keener's book, and actually his part of his review is on the back of, of the book. I said, so have you changed your view? He said, well, I... I'm beginning to change my view on the Johannine hypothesis. I said, why is that? He said, due to Dr. Petrie's work. He's very convincing. So I see this as a major shift, at least in in modern scholarship, from a person who was solid on the Johannine hypothesis. And I've seen other people who have started to also shift their, their view. Now, just because scholarship might be moving means that Facebook hasn't caught up yet. And unfortunately, within the Torah movement, the Hebrew Roots movement, and even Christianity, most people follow Facebook as opposed to scholarship, which is unfortunate. Um, with that said, let's get to the argument now. Here is the argument. The argument, uh, one of the, and we've done, we did something on, on uh, Zach Bauer years ago, did a, a video called uh, like Five Nails in the Coffin, why... Uh, the Last Supper was not a Passover meal. Um, and I, I would hope that, that Zach has changed his mind on these things, but I doubt it. Anyway, one of his, one of his uh, arguments was that, th- that the word artos, which means bread in, in the Greek, r- refers to bread and not matzah, not unleavened bread. Now, this is the same argument that, uh, that, that my, uh, Michael Rood has used to try to take John 6, 4 out of the Bible. Oh. And so let's go to John 6, 4 through 7. Let's read that real quick. It says, and I'm reading out of the ESV, it says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now this is the part that, that uh, Mr. Rood wants to take out of the Bible, which is absolutely ridiculous. You have no manuscript evidence until the 13th century that this would be taken out. And that's simply just the copyist screwed up. He missed a line. Anyway... Uh, Let's go on. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread? And this word bread right here is our toy. It's actually our toy uh, so that these people may eat. He said this to test him, so on and so forth. Um, and so Rude says, oh, see, the, the word bread is here. They would not be eating our, to- our toy during, uh, during the Passover. And so this clearly can't be a Passover. This book right here, and if you don't have it. This uh, is the problem. This is such a problem. <laughs> it's ridiculous. This book right here is a, is a wonderful book written in 19... <laughs> actually, I think it was uh, translated in 1966 um, by Joachim Jeremias. Uh, it has been the standard. It has, uh, for anything Passover, Last Supper, debate-related. Once again, and I cannot stress enough that this was written in 1966, okay? Um, and this that's just, before, that's bone. This just shows that people don't read. Um, and, and, you know, I, I'm going to... That's because re- they're too busy talking. Yes, exactly. I'm going to read this because... Jeremiah does this wonderful thing in refuting 12 different objections to the Last Supper being a Passover meal. And number one, number one is the Artos argument. argument. And I don't see any reason to try to restate what Jeremiah has already (laughs) said beautifully over 50 years ago. 
<clears throat> let's uh, let's go ahead and read. <clears throat> Ever since a short study by J. Wellenhausen appeared in 1906, I, the dates are important to show the, stu yeah. the, the stupidity of this argument. In 1906, it has been frequently contended that the Last Supper could not have been a Passover meal because Mark 14.22 speaks of bread, artos, whereas only unleavened bread could probably be used in describing the, a Passover. Uh, unleavened bread cannot be designated bread. This is the argument. But not one of yeah. the numerous writers who have repeated, repeated Wellhausen's thesis has taken the trouble to check it. Although as early as 1912, G. Beer had seriously challenged it. As a matter of fact, the con contention that unleavened bread cannot be called bread is incorrect, quite apart from the possibility of a mere inaccuracy in the report when Mark 14.22 speaks of bread, or from the fact that the Eucharistic practice of the earliest churches which used ordinary leavened bread might have led to some inaccuracy of expression. It has to be stated that the words lechem and artos could be used of both leaven and unleavened bread. And he goes on to That's show right. that the unleavened bread used in the temple on a regular basis is called artos. Right. In the Septuagint. Oh. Right. Lechem. And it's the Hebrew lechem. Yeah. Like the here's here's some other examples. Aside from like Deuteronomy 16, where it's specifically called the artos of affliction, the bread of affliction. It's talking about matzah. Aside from that, when you have the bread of the presence, for example, which is in the, the holy place, that's referred to as artos. Right. Even um, in the Septuagint, it's not the Septuagint, in, in uh, Numbers 28, where, where Adonai is saying, this is my lechem, this is my bread, Philo uses that as artos, and which, is, which is, means his food. But there's no leavened bread ever offered in, in the, the Mishkan. Right. So, yeah, this is just another example of people that are not in any kind of peer review. They're not under like your Michael Rood or whoever. They don't have any teachers. They And they therefore they just make stuff up and because they're good at selling. Right. And they're they don't have anybody to correct them. Joshua in the in the uh, chat room says, I'm sorry, but. Michael Rood is not my definition of a scholar. I need to be very clear. I ne have never referred to never. Mr. Rood no, as a scholar. No, what we're talking about is how people listen and buy in. Right. Um, and they think he is. Yeah. And this is not to say, look, look th also, this is not to say that scholars always have it right. I mean, this is why there is nothing that's ever settled in scholarship. People will no, always. Things need to be tested. Right. Things need to be just like where we need to test ourselves. People will people will always disagree. And, you know, and a perfect example of this, you know, I'm I've said many times recently that I'm going through the book of Acts with my congregation. And uh, and one of the interesting things about my study in Acts is that I've chosen four main commentaries that I'm pulling from. So. I read a verse and then I read out of my four commentaries. And then if I need more, I'll go to other commentaries and whatnot. All four of the commentaries are, are people that are high profile scholars, even today, that I highly respect and know are much better. I don't consider myself a scholar. These guys are real scholars and they're teaching scholars. So they teach other scholars how to be scholars. 
Um, with that said, I disagree with them. I chose four commentaries from four scholars that I knew I was going to disagree with. And the reason why is because I respect them enough to understand that even though I might disagree on certain things, they have structured their scholarship in a way that they're there to be respected. And a lot of what they say is right. Well, and you've put yourself in a situation where you need to work hard, right? To articulate right. why you either agree or disagree. And that's part of your shaping as a teacher and as just as a disciple of Yeshua to become clear and, and, you know, studying to show yourself approved. You know, some people might push back Caleb and say, Caleb, all you need is you just pick a translation right. of Acts and then that's all you need engage in all these commentaries there's endless commentaries why would you engage with commentaries what would you say to that person i'll tell you uh, I, what i would say is that when we read the and we've done this before my my group and i have sat down we've read the text we have great conversations around that text i always ask before i launch into my notes are there any comments or any questions or anything that we see in the text and we usually we can usually get a good amount of traction however when you uh, study people, when you look at people's works who have studied the ancient texts, who have really done the hard work, it opens up a whole new light. Every single verse has something that we right, exactly. are missing. All you're doing is you're looking into the world that the translators are looking at. Right. Exactly. So when you look at an English translation of Acts, let's say, and, you, and you're going to insist, oh, we're just stopping there. In terms, we're not going to look at any more commentaries. We're just going to take these translators' word for it. What you're doing is you're you're cutting yourself off from the fact that that translation is part of a world of conversation about what the original means. And so looking at commentaries, particularly ones where you, you say, okay, this person's a believer, but I think I have some basic disagreement with them, but I'm still going to hear them out. I see that as that's like at the, the pinnacle of engaging in, in serious Bible study because you're, you're not shying away from people who have a different viewpoint. Right. And you're saying, you know what, it's not a threat to me, but I'm going to respond, you know, I'm, and it'll, it helps shape us. Well, you know, look, cause the I, people I, I, who are doing that work have worked really hard. Yeah, right. And, give you know, me, they've give done, you. and, and those are people who've gone before us, you know, and we need to, why not learn from them? You know, there's no sense in trying to reinvent a wheel and wasting years of my life well, barking it, up the wrong tree when I could have just read Jeremiah's notes right. on why Artos is not a sufficient argument and gone, wow, that's true. Look at Philo, look at Josephus. Yeah, clearly is a non-issue um, rather than have to try to go and write a doctor, doctoral dissertation on it. You know, or there's, something. Th there's other, there's other, you know, like for instance, this morning we're in Acts seven right now. Stephen's, uh, Stephen's speech. Now he says <clears throat> that Joseph brought Jacob down, and he and the patriarchs were taken up and buried. And then he gives, in in a place where where that Abraham bought. Well, that's not true. If you look at the text, it seems as though Stephen has his facts mixed up. So, I mean, just looking at the text, I don't know. You know, that's a that's a really difficult question. However, you go into these commentaries and all of a sudden, you know, you have one 
hypothesis here, two hypothesis, three hypothesis, and all of a sudden things start to become a lot clearer. They're referencing other things, and you know it's bringing all these different things together, and and this is what allows me to say, oh, okay, now I see the weight of the evidence probably leans towards this hypothesis, and all of a sudden this is not a difficult text anymore. Now, now what we can do is we can take these commentaries and, and the ideas that have been brought forward. We can shape a an understanding for ourselves. And we can preach from it. We can preach the gospel message from it. And that's that's the most important part, is being able to look at it and say, okay, what was Stephen doing? Was it on purpose? Did he get his facts mixed up on purpose? Or are the facts right? Which I think they are. <laughs> uh, you're going to have to wait until my notes come out on Acts. I'm thinking about, actually, one of the things I'm thinking about doing for Torah Resources is actually teaching through Acts. Because I think cool. it would be fun. I think it'd be fun. And now I have a little bit of a, I have, you know, I have a little bit of a head start with, with my congregation, so it wouldn't be so hard to, uh, to, to start going through Acts. Anyway, okay. Um, now, we have two different ways that we can go. You know, last, last week we talked about uh, my time at uh, the Institute for Expository Preaching, which I was uh, learning under Dr. Stephen Lawson. Wonderful time I had there for, for uh, two days with uh, a room full of preachers. It was just fantastic. Um, and one of the points that I said last week that I, I gained from it was always be preaching the gospel. So this last week, Rob and I were discussing show topics, and Rob just said, <laughs> okay, well, have we ever just preached the gospel? And then the question came, okay, well, what exactly are we going to say is the gospel? I think that even though we talk, we use this word a lot, right? We use the word gospel a, a lot, constantly. Um, preach the gospel, give the gospel. Uh, they need the gospel. I wonder how often people say that word, but really have, uh, explain it to me. What do you think the gospel actually is? I wonder how many people would actually be able to say, this is the gospel. And there's a lot of questions that come from this. Now, did you want to do your uh, our discussion on on the term Shiloh bef during this d discussion, or do you want to do it first? Well, I guess it. Well, why don't Why don't I? Let's just do that. Okay. We'll do, um, and I'll set this tape. This is. They'll seem maybe kind of like a a de uh, a departure from what we were talking about, but I think it'll come back in. It'll all so, tie in. Trust me. For for. Counting the Omer, Tor Resource has a, maybe if you're on the mailer, you've got uh, this download link that just has a, a scriptural meditation, simple verse, starting with, you know, Genesis for day one, Exodus day two, right? Right. As you count through the Omer. And of course, uh, over 49 days, you can get through a lot of scripture, a uh, little one, one verse from each. Well, for day one of counting the Omer, was Genesis 49.10, which is the scepter, I think the NASB, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, right. until Shiloh comes, what a and to him shall be too, the right? obedience of the peoples. And so I just posted that because I've just been simply putting out each of these every day. That my plan is, if I remember, <laughs> I'll put up, you know, for the counting of Elmer. Right. And all I'm doing is cutting and pasting from the Torah resource uh, pamphlet you can download for free but you download two, and print oh and you can print it out if you want to yeah um 
we got two different, I personally, maybe you did too, Caleb, but I got two different responses. One was our friend Asher from Singapore, and one was one of our friends from uh, Canada. And um, the listener from Singapore wrote, well, what's your take on Shiloh, on this word Shiloh? Because it's not, in Genesis 49.10, it's not always translated as capital S, Shiloh, as a name. It's sometimes, to him, to whom it is coming or to whom it belongs or something like that. By the way, there is a, there is a great message to be preached out of this too. I'll hit this in a few seconds. Go. Okay. Cause this is going to touch us back into the gospel, but um, this idea of Shiloh comes, if you look at the NASB study note, it says, or until he comes to Shiloh. Right. In other words, if Shiloh is a place or the footnote says until he comes, comes to whom it belongs right so the idea is there's a mystery here and i i replied to asher i said you know this this is a bit of a mystery i said i'm biased towards targamonkelos and uh, how it's represented in the dead sea scrolls so we we have targamonkelos which we don't have data for from the first century can you can you uh, explain to people real quick what targamonkelos is yeah so uncle uh, targum is an aramaic translation of of the tanakh so it's an Aramaic translation, and um, it's hard to date some of these because we have our manuscripts are late. We don't know when they first started circulating. But one of the Targumim, one of the Aramaic translations of the Torah, has um, translate this uh, until the Messiah comes, to who whose is the kingdom, to whom belongs the kingdom, so that Aramaic translates Shiloh. In a uh, in a exegetical kind of manner, it doesn't try to. It doesn't even translate the word Shiloh. It just says until the Messiah comes. Right. It translates Shiloh as Messiah. Well, but again, like I said, that we don't know where. We just know the tradition was there in the rabbinic era, but we don't know how far back to push it. But from Qumran, then we can date it. Now we know it's a before the destruction of the temple, so we know it's a second temple era. And this is not in even uh, in Aramaic. This is in Hebrew, and it is explaining Genesis forty nine ten and what we call a pesher or a how the Qumran community interpreted. Well, we don't. Know. It was part of their library. We don't know. You know, they might have disagreed on this point among right. them. But the point is, this was in their library, and in their library, they have a Hebrew writing talking about Genesis forty nine ten, and it describes that until the messiah it says mashiach hatzedek tzemach david it says the the righteous messiah the branch, the branch of, of david, david come so and it's uh the whole context here is what does it mean between you know the ruler departing from judah what does it mean that he will not be cut off what does it mean what is the ruler's staff right it's all unpacking genesis 49 10 and like the later aramaic uses the word Messiah to explain it. And so I told Asher, I said, I'm biased towards that believers in Yeshua would have thought of it in the same way. And so I don't have a problem with the NASB saying until Shiloh comes and then putting Shiloh with a capital S and understanding that to be a prophecy for the Messiah to come from Judah that is on the lips of Israel of Jacob, right? This is Jacob uh, blessing his his sons, and so this is um, 
the third son, right? Avraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, on the lips of Yaakov, blessing Judah and talking about um, Shiloh is as a name for that the Messiah would come. That's one email, and that was my response. The other was an email saying, hey, we've heard somewhere up here in Canada this guy's teaching that um, the scepter shall not depart from Judah and means that the rabbinics, the rabbis today have still have authority over us. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Yeshua is Jewish, yes. Yeshua is from the tribe of Judah. And to him, as it says in Matthew 28, he has authority over all, you know, all authority over heaven and earth. And he's our authority, period. End of story. So I don't know what this guy, apparently there's someone in Canada who apparently imagines himself to be a messianic anointed teacher or something, but he's telling people (laughs) that the rabbis still have authority over them. And that's nonsense. That's absolute nonsense. And that reminds me of the other guy we were just talking about, people who are teaching that shouldn't be, and they're able to, they gather a crowd and they convince people to listen. And, but you know, we're told, you know, that there'd be wolves in sheep clothing. So So I want to, I want to stop real quick. Oops, wrong keyboard. Sorry. I got two keyboards in front of me. I should take a picture of this and show people sometime what's what I'm looking at. Um, okay. So uh, before we go on, I want to mention that my father has, my father, Tim Hegg, uh, president of Torah Resource, has written on this passage in his commentary. So it's not a commentary. It's it's a workbook, but his... his uh, and we have a class for it, too. We, yeah, have, we have a class, class on Messiah this as well. But it's called Messiah in the Tanakh. You can find it on TorahResource.com, starting on page 57. Now, he's, he actually goes through the text before this, before page 57. And you can, I think it starts on page 52 or 53. Um, and he looks at all the different translations, all this kind of stuff. And then he gives, he gives some, um, some understanding of, of where this word Shiloh may have come from. He talks about, um, he breaks down the Hebrew in different translations, all this kind of stuff. And I mean, it is extremely detailed. It is, it is quite heady as well. However, for those who are looking for a much deeper um, understanding of this word and the discussion on Shiloh and what this might mean, um, I, I would encourage you to go check it out. And I'm sorry, it's not in the show notes. We didn't act, I didn't actually realize we were talking about this until about two minutes before we came on air. Um, with that said, I think that I think the thing that could be uh, the, the message that could be preached from this is that um, we know that the tabernacle before the temple was built before Solomon built the temple which is a, a beautiful text by the way I'm in the I'm in first Kings in my personal uh, in my personal devotions and it is just a beautiful beautiful uh, text to, to go through and, and see the the creation and the building of the temple anyway before that we have we have God in Exodus saying that he's going to dwell with his people right mm-hmm. and that uh, and this is this is what's going to happen he brings them out of Egypt. Okay, and now he's going to dwell with his people. And Moses goes up onto the mountain. He receives the covenant, and uh, and then he's up there for forty days. And then he comes down. He breaks the tablets. He's up there for another forty days. And uh, what's he learning? Well, he comes down and, and he builds the tabernacle. And this is the tent, right? The tent that's going to move with the um, with the Israelites. I've actually written a paper on this, which is probably one of the worst papers I've ever written. For some reason, it's still up on Torah Resource, but it's called Face of a Friend. I argue in that paper that uh, that what Moses was doing was building the tent where Yeshua would actually uh, dwell with them within their within the um, within the the people the 
people of Israel. This is one of the reasons that um, the the conversation in Second Corinthians of, of uh, Moses covering his face because he shone forth. And what did he shine forth? He, well, he shone forth uh, being with Yeshua. Anyway, um, all of this to say that that this tent of meeting is the place where God comes and dwells with his people within the within the camp. When Israel comes into the land, the tent is eventually it eventually settles where in Shiloh, right? Mm-hmm. And so. Basically, the way that I see this is is we have, uh, you know, what do you th- what what was uh, actually dwelling in the tent, uh, the Shekinah, the 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 Holy Spirit. Um, I think yes, it was the Holy Spirit, but I also believe that uh, pre incarnate Yeshua was what was uh, meeting and, and speaking with Moses and then Joshua, and so I see this as Yeshua coming and dwelling, and his tent is is rests in Shiloh. So when he says the scepter will not depart until Shiloh comes, in other words, this is when the Messiah comes in human form. Shiloh is representation of the tent, which holds God, God with us. And Isaiah also tells us that his name will be called Mighty Counselor, Mighty God, uh, Everlasting Counselor, and Emmanuel, right? All these things. He gives all these all these titles, but Emmanuel, God with us, is one of them. And so I see the interchange of Shiloh being where the tent of God rests, and then God in the flesh coming to dwell with His people. This is where I think I think that there is a there's there's something to be seen there, um, even outside of the Hebrew word itself. That's my thought. I could be totally off. I could be totally off. You? Nah. Nah, come on. No, no, definitely not. Okay, let's get into it. Um, as I said, this this conversation is, is going to probably span multiple shows, and uh, we've already had some discussion. There's been, uh, within the Torah movement, there's different, uh, and whether or not, whatever you want to, whatever offshoots of that you'd call this, there's been suggestions on what the gospel message is. One of the most egregious ones, I think, is this idea that uh, the gospel message is that God came and married Israel. She whored after other people, so God divorced her. And then, for some reason, she couldn't come back, which the Torah never says. The Torah never says that a divorced woman can't come back. It only says that if she marries another, she can't come back. Um, anyway, and then the idea is that, okay, well, now God can't marry her for some reason, and so there has to be a death so that uh, so that there can be a remarriage, and that this is why Yeshua came. If this is what people are saying, the gospel message is. I'm sorry, I I just don't think this is the gospel message. I just don't think it's true. Now, one of the questions that I do have, and I think that we, you and I, Rob, can d- discuss this, is did the gospel message change over time? I don't think it changed, but I think that there was un- a better understanding of it. Progressive revelation of what this oh sure yeah. of what this message was well like I love it how in in Galatians it says that the scripture foreseeing that the Gentiles would be justified by faith um, preached the gospel in advance to Abraham saying in you all this all the nations of the world would be blessed right so Abraham believing that all the nations of the world would be blessed is one way it's described as as the gospel. So in other words, the gospel is good. Literally, it means good news, right? It's something that, that, that faith clings onto, right? Right. It's something that faith clings onto. 
and um, and that the righteous, you know, though it, the righteous hold to that. That that's the core of 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 the story while they're in this world is is the light of that hope um, that these things would be fulfilled. And there's a wonder about it. You know, they don't have all the answers. You know, they um, but they know that God's going to do this somehow. You know, God's going to do something that it's that it's going to involve miraculous birth. It's going to involve resurrection, right? All these things unfold like you're talking about, right? Even it says, you know, that uh, I, in the gospel of John, I think it, it, it quotes Isaiah. John quotes Isaiah and says, this is what he said when he saw his glory. Right. That is like, like he says, Isaiah saw Yeshua's suffering and glory from afar in the same way that it says, Abraham saw my day that, um, we know that if Yeshua would have appeared to Isaiah, if Yeshua would have appeared to Abraham, they would have fallen on their face. They would have known who it was. They wouldn't have been like, hmm, who do you think you are? Okay. You know, you imposter. Let's let's slow down for just a second here because in the Helen in the uh, in the chat room makes a good point. She says, "I don't understand, but I, I but I don't understand that because Gen, Gentiles could come into covenant if they wanted before this." Now, okay, let's slow down for just a second. Yes, that is true. And they did. And they did. They did. They did. Um, but let's slow down. For the first and foremost, let's look at what the scripture says. And and you went right to where I was going to go, which is which is uh, Galatians three, right? Paul tells us exactly what he sees the gospel as in Galatians. He says in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, and here's what the gospel message is in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is a callback though. And the reason why is because Adam and Eve were given the gospel, right? What was the gospel message given to Adam and Eve? That the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent, would crush the head of the serpent. What did that mean? The serpent is a representation of sin Right. And the seed is at this point, they don't know what the seed is or who the seed, I should say who the seed is. They know what the seed is. They don't know who it is. And through progressive revelation, the, the gospel message continues to be refined. It is then given to, to Abraham that in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Therefore, the seed of the woman, this word seed is now being connected through the Genesis narrative. Right. So the, the first gospel message that we're given is in Genesis three, in the beginning of Genesis three. And this thread now comes all the way through and several times, right? We're told in Genesis 15, I believe it is, right? That the seed will come through Abraham. And this seed is now, now we know that it's coming through Abraham. 22, Genesis 22, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. How will they be blessed? Well, this, the seed that is promised to Eve is now going to come through you. Once we get into Samuel, Right, we have David being told that that seed is now going to come from his loins, and that that the the uh, kingdom, the the throne will be filled forever, an everlasting throne. Right? How's that possible? Well, through the seed, which is, and then and then once we get into the to the uh, prophets, it expands so much more. Especially Isaiah. Isaiah saw that. I mean, he saw this crystal clear, as did Daniel, and I think mo- I think all the prophets did. And what was this message? The message was redemption. Now, I think one of the problems that we have in the apostolic scriptures is that the idea of redemption was national redemption from 
the overlord of whoever at the time, uh, you know, in the apostolic scriptures is Rome. So they're thinking kingly redemption. We see this in some of the writings like the, the, the Qumran scrolls. So I think that the ultimate, the ultimate gospel message is redemption. What people missed throughout the ages was the idea that redemption was not from physical peril, but rather it was from the sin, from the fall of man in the garden. I think that that is ultimately the gospel message. Now, back to Helen's uh, point here that, that Gentiles could come into covenant relationship. Sure, they could, absolutely. But I think that there was a monopoly that was taking place and taking hold by Judaism. If you, you have to become one of us. And the idea, the notion that Gentiles would be included in the, in, in the redemption of Israel was so egregious. I was reading this this morning. It wasn't egregious to Avraham. No, and that's just or, it. Or that, to Isaiah, like Isaiah 56, you know. Right, certainly. Let not the foreigners say that the Lord will separate me from his people, right? Don't let him say that, right? So I was reading this this morning. I'm in Acts 22, starting in verse 17. We'll read all the way through 22. <clears throat> When I had, this is Paul talking. He's in the temple, and he's addressing the, the Jews. He says, When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that this one, in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. So he's, he's in the temple. Right. Talking to Yeshua. Well, he's he's making a speech to the Jews, but he's recounting. No, no, no. But yeah, right. but he's telling a story. He's like, yeah, I'm in the temple worshiping right. and right. praying. And I'm getting marching orders from Yeshua, who I'm, right. whom I'm calling Lord. <laughs> That's awesome. That's no wonder they're like, they don't want to hear that Yeshua's, you know. It's not just that. Up to this point, they listened. Teaching, let alone that he's, that he, that this is back to the Abrahamic covenant. Right. The reason his name's Avraham, right? A multitude of nations. I'm going to wow. send you to the Gentiles. Nope, this guy's not allowed to live now. Why? Because he's he's saying that the Gentiles have inheritance. In what? In the redemption, That's right? And so, to me, this is this is uh, this is the, and this is where the lines get split because there is double redemption. In Acts, again, and I think it's in 4, it says that heaven must receive him, talking of Yeshua, until the appointed time. What t what time is that? Redemption from, from, physical, from physical oppression of Israel. The redemption of, of, from sin has already happened. And the, and the prophecies that a nation that is not my people will become my people now has to be, it now is fulfilled in the Abrahamic covenant. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Let's go to uh, 
do you, I'll stop now. Do you want to go for a few seconds and, and ruminate on any of that? No, it's all good. Let's go to Romans. I love how Paul does this. Paul has this wonderful ability to place all of the... He does this thing where he packs everything into a couple of verses, and then he'll spend the rest of a chapter, two chapters, three chapters, whatever, expanding, right? Expanding what he he's just said in six verses. Romans 1, 1 and following. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So now he's going to tell us what this gospel is, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning, okay, so he's he's building this argument, and what argument is he building in Romans 1? Starting in verse 1, he tells us, set apart for the gospel, and now he's building this out. He told it beforehand in the Scriptures and the prophet, concerning his son, who was descended from David, and this is a, a call back to, to, to Samuel and to the prophecy that, that the king would come through his line that would sit on the throne forever, to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power. And this hails back uh, to, to Exodus, right? Firstborn son, uh, Pharaoh's firstborn son is dead. All the firstborn are, are dead. And how is Israel saved? Through the death of, of God's firstborn, which is Yeshua. So declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. This now is sanctification. So through whom we, ha we have received grace, so that's justification, is grace, and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith, sanctification, for the sake of his name, to glorify God, that is, among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those who are in Rome, who are loved by God and called, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is his, the first seven Verses. This is the gospel message, compact into seven verses. What's interesting is that now what, what does he do? Now Paul goes directly to the doctrines of grace <laughs> and talks about total depravity. This is a question that, that I pose to Rob. Do we find the gospel message so clearly given in the scriptures without some essence of the doctrines of grace attached to it. I mean, look at Exodus. Exodus 12 is the, uh, is the pinnacle of Paul's debate for the doctrines of grace in Romans 9. And what is it? It's the gospel message preached. Preached in prophetic ways from Exodus. I've been talking for a long time. Go, Rob. Say something. Amen. Preach it, brother. <laughs> No support. Are you in the chat room right now? You no, should, no, you no, should I'm be. <laughs> I've got Romans one in front of me. I'm reading it in Greek. And what do you think? What What are you uh, picking up in Greek that's that uh, should be? Well, at that obedience, you talked about the. You talked about uh, verse five, through whom we have, uh, we've received grace and apostleship. That those are those go together. 
right? There's two things that that go together, the grace, and he unpacks that in chapter five, right? The grace, you know, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God, et cetera, right? And, And it talks about how we great, this grace in which we stand, right? We have this, our position is that we stand in grace through Yeshua, but that there's this, this apostole here, this apostleship right, unto, for a purpose, right? The purpose that it's not just God just, okay, I'm just going to save you. There's a larger, you enter into this story that is part of this larger purpose, which is the obedience of faith among all the nations. So that's, we, Paul talks about David there in chapter one, verse two, three, the seed of David, but just like the gospel of Matthew starts, yeah, son of David, son of Abraham. In other words, that David has meaning only in as much as it, Abraham has meaning, right? right. And so that this promise, and this, this goes right back to our Genesis 49, yeah, until Shiloh comes, right? This is Jacob, you know, the grandson of Abraham talking about this, you know, and unto him will be the obedience of the peoples, right? I think is how that's my paraphrase, Genesis 49, verse 10, that the messianic promise there, do I still have that? Yeah, so the whole verse there is, uh, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Now remember, this is Jacob's words over Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Right? Right. So the idea of the coming one and then the obedience of the Yikhat uh, Amim, the Amim, are the peoples. Well, that's just a little tiny little seed of what Paul is unpacking here. He anchors it in David. He anchors it in the tribe of Judah. And then he, he furthermore gives the context of this, of like you just pointed out, that this is, his, this is God's son, right? Taking us back to the redemption of Exodus, in Exodus, which is not a brand new thing. It's because he promised Abraham he would do it. And um, that the purpose here is the obedience of the faith among all the nations, right? For his name's sake, what does that mean? For his purposes, it's the same phrase from like Psalm 23, right? He leads me in path of righteousness for his name's sake. Right. He's got a purpose. He's got a plan and he's, he's <laughs> drawing all unto himself according to his good purposes for his elect. So there's a there's a comment here, and I and this is a great comment because it's going to get us into some of the more um, pinpointed aspects of the gospel message. Because I, I think that there we've basically what we've done it's like shooting an arrow, right? We've shot an arrow at the target, okay? But there's all these other areas around the the center of the target that need to be hit when we talk about the gospel message. The entire target needs to be hit, not just the center. We've hit the center with with what the what the main point is. The main point is that we have redemption from in the seed, and the seed is Yeshua. This is the middle of the target. That's the middle of the gospel message that we have redemption from sin. It's it's the lamb that the Lord will provide. That's exactly <clears throat> Genesis exactly. twenty two. Yes. Um, Joseph says, some Jews argue the giving of the Torah and obedience to it was how man was to crush the serpent, evil inclination. Is this aligned with the word embodied? No. And the reason why is because we are not able to keep Torah. All of our 
acts are as dirty rags before the before the Almighty, <clears throat> unless we have the Messiah Yeshua. No man comes to the Father but through me. Justification happens before sanctification. We are justified before we're sanctified. If we are not justified before we're sanctified, we have no good works. What looks like Torah observance is nothing. It's a filthy rag. It's not obedience. Obedience only comes through faith in the Messiah Yeshua. Outside of that, we are enemies of God and enemies of the gospel. Yeah, I there there is the and you get it into the Jewish in the Jewish mysticism world circles too. This idea of when you do a commandment, you actually you actually gain ground. Like you actually repair what's broken and then right. you reclaim like sacred space that that sin had infiltrated or something like that. And that's that's not that's not what the scripture teaches at all. What the scripture teaches is that that you are in in Yeshua, you are a new creation. And then you behave, you learn as your disciple to behave more and more coherently with the will of God because you're seeking, you're learning to discern and to seek the things of the kingdom as your greatest priorities in life. And you're running to to that and you're forsaking sin and evil and all those things. And as you're being refined, you are your behavior more and more is is just keeping the commandments. But you're not gaining you're you're not um, you're not you're not gaining ground. You know, maybe maybe in some ways you could say you're you're because it says, you know, who has over who overcomes except those who have the faith of Yeshua. But Yeshua, the victory is already sure. And as our life um, reflects more and more of Yeshua's life, which is who we truly are, then that's just bringing more light and more fruit of the kingdom into the world. But uh, we don't do anything to defeat. I, I don't think we do anything personally to defeat like the evil one. I think Yeshua did that. And so our behaviors as, as they are more, you know, reflect God's will are, are just simply the fruit of the position that we already, we already stand in grace. Um, because the temptation, the other way, what's the alternative is like, okay, okay, Caleb, you're in a iffy situation now. And if you do commandments, the right way, you'll actually get more solid foundation right, under you. Right. And if you don't do commandments, your foundation is going to get weaker and weaker. There's a way to think that now it's just on your shoulders to do, you know, to do everything exactly right. And again, the, the, the rabbis themselves have trouble with this because by the Middle Ages, they have to bring reincarnation in to help right. solve the problem. Right. So Because they recognize, man, nobody's, you know, yeah, nobody's yeah. doing all the commandments. Let's uh, uh, how you know what do we do? Oh, well they and because they they don't want to believe the gospel, they they have to go to reincarnation right as a solution. It's like well, the reason that you know you'll have a chance to come back. So if you it helps the anxious right. If I'm an if I have anxiety, let's say I'm a, you know a Jew, I try to do all the commandments according to the halakha. And I pray with, you know, I try to just have devotional prayer and it's like, but then all of a sudden, you know, I get sick and I don't know why I'm sick and I can't. And all of a sudden I, you know, I'm anxious. Oh no, what, what's going to happen? They'll say, no, don't worry. 
you know, the good that you did, you'll come back again and you'll have a chance to, to be righteous. So ultimately you can have the Holy spirit and ultimately you can be in the great yeshiva on high or whatever. So you know, I want to I want to go to a couple of these comments. We got so many comments in here. People, I mean, we're getting blown up here, which is great. Okay, I'm going to look for for one minute. Uh, somebody says, "Is Yeshua the only way to the Father?" Yes. Yes. Yeshua is the only way to the Father. John uh, fourteen six. Yeshua answered, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." Um, and then somebody else says, um, "Why does?" God say Torah observance is not too difficult. Well, what is Torah observance? You you don't have Torah observance without Christ. Romans 320, uh, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the Torah. Rather, through the Torah, we became conscience, conscious to, of sin. We are not justified by the Torah. Um, unashamed of Jesus says, do you believe Abraham met Yeshua in Genesis 18 before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? Yes, I do. We've written on this extensively and uh, I've written on this as well. Um, okay. I've, I've had my minute. Okay. I just wonder, did, did we, uh, Hans Anderson yes, ask the question? Did we address that? Which question? He said, how did, or what did Jesus accomplish that wasn't already being accomplished? Ah. That's well, a great question. The, uh, yeah, that is a great question. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to close out now. Thank you for giving me a minute to, uh, look, that, that was good. One of the, yeah. The th it's a whole world. It's a whole, like, uh. What did he accomplish that, wa that wasn't already accomplished? Well, technically speaking, he finished what needed to be finished. He accomplished it from the foundations of the world because, he was crucified from the foundations of the world. In other words, God doesn't. God lives outside of time, and therefore he sees exactly. the he sees the blood of the Messiah on the cross. As, the question: What it the the question kind of sets up the listener to try to separate Yeshua from God's salvation history, or or as if, yeah. So um, I would say that it's all one and the same. Salvation was always through Yeshua. And Abraham saw Yeshua's day, he longed for it, and he saw it, and he was glad. By in faith, a, exactly. In other words, he had faith in the coming of the seed. Yep. And and Hans, Hans does a follow-up question. No one comes to the Father except through Yeshua, but does that mean you must know his name, salvation before the incarnation? Well, the, the question of did people— Oh, did he know his name was Yeshua? No, probably not. But oh, like well, Isaiah, right? I mean, we could go. I'd have to find. Let me see if I can find it there. But, but th th this is. Th I see where this where this is going to go. Maybe not with Hans, but I see where people will, will take this. You know, there are people like Mark Biltz out there who are, are teaching that that uh, Jews who don't believe in Yeshua, who curse the name of Yeshua, yet believe in a coming Messiah, are saved. This is nonsense. Progressive revelation shows us that Yeshua was the Messiah and that we believe in Him. And that through his work, we are saved. And therefore, right. someone who doesn't believe now, after the death and, and resurrection of the Messiah, and with the revelation that we have in the apostolic scriptures, someone who doesn't believe in the Messiah and the work that he did on the cross does not have salvation. That This doesn't mean that the Lord won't bring them to salvation. If they right. are the elect, they will be brought to salvation. But the point is, is that they don't have salvation if they curse the name of Yeshua.
Now, beforehand, what was the what was the faith that needed needed to be uh, had to have redemption in the in the coming Messiah? I think it was belief and faith, true faith in the saving redemption of the Messiah. I don't know how that plays out in God's uh, plan in terms of what exactly did they have to believe in. Faith in God will not reject the gospel. Faith exactly. in God will never reject who Yeshua is. They will they genuine faith hears the gospel and believes the gospel. There's no there's no uh, separation on that point. So, for example, like I found the verse, it's John twelve forty one. He's quoting like Isaiah fifty three. He says Isaiah said this because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Right. Right. So maybe Isaiah didn't know his name was Yeshua of Nazareth. Right. Or uh, Moses or John, sorry, Yeshua says Moses wrote about me. Well, never in the Torah does it say Yeshua of Nazareth. Well, how did how did how did Abraham see and believe? Right. The point is they had genuine faith in the coming one, in the Messiah that would come. Did they know his that he would be born in Bethlehem? Not until it was revealed to the prophet. Did they know he was, um, you know, going to be raised in Nazareth? You know, these things are, we have much more detail now, but the core faith, the core faith is not dependent on knowing any of these particular details. But the thing is, the details are now fully revealed. They're out here. So the heart that truly has the faith of Abraham or truly has the faith of Moshe or the faith of Isaiah will hear and receive the gospel gladly. And that's why you have, by God's promise, every generation, you have Jewish believers, right? You have Jews that are raised in the Talmudic world, in the world of the halakha and the, and that, in the yeshivot, and they, they hear the gospel and they it, boom, it's crystal clear and they believe it. Why? And then, but then you'll have another Jewish person that raised in the same thing. They hear the gospel and they, they get angry and start burning Bibles. Why? Why do you have the different reaction? <laughs> so we, we need to go back for a second. Um, is, uh, so uh, there's a follow-up question from one person who says, Question two: If Yeshua only is the only way to the Father, Jewish people do Jewish people observe Torah in vain? Yes. Yeah. Do do we think that do we think that the Pharisees who were who were um, zealous for the Torah, which Paul says that he was zealous for the Torah, um, and persecuted Christ, do we think that they were saved? He says that was all in vain. Yeah, Yeshua said. Yeah, Yeshua yeah, says that Paul himself born. writes in Philippians says that was all, all that in was vain, scabula. Right? That was. That was a bad word. Poo-poo. Han says, is there... Oppor- <laughs> I mean, in Greek, I mean, that's what it is. Right. You know? Han says, is there opportunity for salvation after earthly death? The spirit who, who's who the spirits who are in prison? No, there's not. Hebrews 9.21 says... Um, oh, you got to read Tim Haig's art. We have an article on that, Hans. Um, how to understand the, those passages from uh, Peter. Right about Yeshua's, uh, what does it mean? What is the spirits in prison, et cetera? Did, yeah, did Yeshua descend into hell, I think is right. the name There's, of the uh, That's on TorahResource.com. But Hebrews 9.27 says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Right. Um, and then Joseph says, if the gospel 
Faith in the mis- and he keeps spelling it M M E S D I A H Mestia. He's probably be, he's probably just typing really fast because DNS. Be, yeah, that's right that's got to be a, a typo. Anyway, <clears throat> if <clears throat> pardon me, um, where was I? I just skipped. I'm sorry. If the gospel, faith in the Messiah, was from the beginning, wouldn't that mean the faithful Torah observant are saved? No, because who because are the faithful self- Torah observant? <clears throat> because salvation has never been through Torah observance. Paul makes this very clear. Faith is uh, uh, salvation. Uh, justification is through faith alone. Abraham had faith. He uses Abraham as the pinnacle of this argument. It's not through Torah observance that Abraham is is saved. It's not because he circumcises himself. He had faith before circumcision. Exactly. That's the whole point that Paul tries to drill down. Why does he? Why does Paul have to drill down on it so much? The reason he has to drill down on it so much is not because he has to force the argument from Scripture. It's because the the hard heartedness of the the people that he's uh, having to deal with in the world. They're so wrapped up thinking that their identity is in what has become called the, you know, Maase Torah. um, They're operating from a hypocrisy and uh, in our our time right now, because we're in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they're all puffed up in leaven. They're in the doctrine of the Pharisees or the doctrine of the Sadducees, right. and that's who they think they are. And, the, and then they justify themselves in that over against those evil nations. And that's why the idea of nations coming to be loved and embraced by God as part of the covenant is absolutely abhorrent to them. Right. Because they're... Yes. Their vision of who they are is so is so backwards already, and and it's beautifully put in Yeshua's teaching when he contrasts the Pharisee who goes and stands proudly in the temple and tells God about how much he tithes and how often he fasts in the week and he, how he's glad he's not like this other guy, <laughs> over against the guy publican who won't even look up and it just beats his breast and right. says, you know, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right. And Yeshua says it's the second guy that's justified. Because he sees God correctly, and he knows that God sees his sin. And so he's not trying to pull one over. The other guy's so inflated and comparing himself with others. He's the guy who's putting on a performance for others. And that's the world that Paul is trying to drill down as, uh, to the bedrock of, of salvation history. And that's why Genesis 15, 6 is so core there. That Abraham trusted God. He believed, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And that's his still na- his name at that time is still Avram. He hasn't received circumcision. His wife is still Sarai, and she's Akarah. She's barren, but yet he believes when he sees all those stars. Right? It, it's a, it's just there. It's so clear in the Torah, but it's not clear if your eyes are crusted over with traditions of men. This and you think that in the traditions of men is where you have your strength before God. My, you my, have no strength before God in, if you're immersed in the traditions of men. My father has written a paper on what it, what was the veil that, that uh, laid over the Torah in 2 Corinthians. He, and, and Paul equates it to the veil that, that Moses put on. And he says it's the ability to see Yeshua. Moses put a veil on so that they wouldn't see Yeshua shining in his face. In other words, th- that generation was cut off from the salvation of Yeshua. It's an excellent paper, and I would I would highly recommend it. Um, it the last question that we're going to answer here uh, from the chat room before we go, and then what we're going to we have to pick this back up because there is some key elements to the gospel message 
all of it's tied together. But Emmanuel, God with us, is vital to the gospel message. The virgin birth, vital to the gospel message. It is part of the gospel. And if you take it away, you don't have the gospel anymore. You have a false gospel. But the last question that we are going to answer, question, what would you say to someone who says Yeshua was a Pharisee? I personally believe Yeshua was a Pharisee. Uh, It never says that, and I know that that can be argued against. Um, but I think that he seems to, I believe that Yeshua actually comes up in, in the Pharisaic tradition. Now, he pushes against the mainstream Pharisaism. And I think this is one of the reasons the Pharisees are always around. They're, they are not liking the fact that he's pushing against the, the norm. They are supposed to be the, the authority within the masses. Yeshua now is taking the masses by preaching a different form of Pharisaism. That's how I see it. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with him being a Pharisee. Paul certainly was a Pharisee. We know that. He calls himself a Pharisee several times. Um, do I think it's important for Yeshua to be or not to be a Pharisee? No, I don't. I don't think it's important to the story, and this is exactly why I don't think that it's mentioned. And I know that there are arguments that he was in a scene, which I think can be fairly easily uh, uh, argued against. Uh, there's other uh, ideas on what he may have been. Um he was a revolutionary, so some people have, have suggested that he was, um, you know, of, of a different sect, maybe one that we don't know of, maybe stayed outside of all sects. Um, I, know, I know that— Well, Yeshua did not get his doctrine— From man. Yeshua didn't, like, go, okay, I'm going to study with—he wasn't like Josephus, who, like, studied with the Sadducees, studied with the different groups to try to learn which was the correct religion, right, of, for, of his people. He wasn't like that. Yeshua, Yeshua, Yeshua's doctrines are always true. And so if that cohered with the Pharisees in some regard, then he would be fine with the Pharisees. Adam, um, but but, but also says, the Pharisees are probably the ones that received the biggest brunt, and maybe it's because they are the closest to his, his view. It's because he sees them as brothers and he's going to roast them. Adam says he was a Jesuit, duh. Peter asks, and and we've, I mean, I I think I mentioned this probably on most most shows. He, he was says, a Yeshuit. Come on. Do we include? There was no J back then. Right. Gosh. Do we do we include today's Christians who have faith and don't follow Torah? I don't believe that a true believing Christian doesn't follow Torah. The question is, is what do you define as Torah? They're going to define certain aspects of God's law differently than, than we are. So do I include them? Absolutely, because and a perfect example. For those out there who do not uh, receive Ligonier Ministries Table Talk magazine, I would highly recommend it. Um, in either this last uh, this last installment or the month before, uh, there was an article by the late great R.C. Sproul on the law of God, a Christian's view on the law of God. If I would have written it, or if my father would have written it, or if Rob would have written it. Uh, Christians would say, oh, they're just legalists. They are, they're just advocating to follow God's Torah. R.C. Sproul writes it, and it's hailed as a wonderful um, addition to any Christian's library. Um, I, honestly, I don't think that it could have been written better. So to, the idea that, that Christians don't, don't follow Torah, I, I reject this outright. There are aspects... It's, that, it's true that, that there are big misunderstandings that have creeped in to Christian tradition. 
you know, that's so I, I can understand someone who's asking about that. This is a, like, I mean, we, we, we you know, we saw this last weekend with like you have Pesach and then you have Easter Sunday with, you know, and people on Facebook, you know, and they're like got their Easter eggs and the bunnies. Right. <laughs> Excuse me. So it's like you wonder, well, how did that what does it have to do with Yeshua's resurrection? You know, I mean, um the so, ham and Easter bunnies and the Easter eggs. And uh, it it's like, how does this point us to Yeshua's resurrection? You know, right. and it, 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 it doesn't. The answer is that it doesn't. And so that, but that's a, that's a fair question to ask your, right. you know, your uh, one, one last, one, one last. I, I, I can't, I can't resist. Somebody says, trying to understand your theology. I ask myself, if salvation means to live after death, then people who have never heard about Yeshua will not live after death? Question. Um, okay, Paul addresses this in Romans 1. Nature declares the finger of God. A faith like a child, right? I don't believe that there's anyone who can say that they haven't seen the gospel message in some way, shape, or form. Now, I understand that there's different levels of that. But the person, and you know, as a as a person who believes fully in the doctrines of grace, I believe that when that Paul makes the argument in Romans nine, what if God, wanting to show His glory, created vessels of wrath for destruction? So, did God create vessels of wrath for destruction? I think that that certainly is possible. I think Pharaoh was one of them. In the Exodus story, did God know that he was going to use Pharaoh to to show his glory by bringing Israel out? I believe so. So that's one option. I think it's uh, Proverbs 16 says the wicked were made for the day of the Lord. But the other uh, the other point is that no one has excuse. Everyone can look out their window and see a tree and know that there is a creator. And everyone can know that they have sinned that they have done evil and wrong and that somehow they need to reconcile that that is the gospel that in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed okay i hope that this conversation has uh, helped in some way we're going to pick it up next week we're going to talk about the other aspects of the gospel that we didn't make it to today um some of the great things like the deity of the messiah the virgin birth and how these play into the gospel message. Um, we will be here next. So next, we have one more show before we leave uh, to go to Oklahoma. Uh, Rob and I will be speaking in Oklahoma. Uh, two different e- events that we're going to. We're very excited for both of them. Uh, looking forward to connect with other believers and to talk about some of these things and to talk about. Uh, we have two different agendas at two different events. So we're going to talk. When I say agendas, I mean things that we're going to talk about. We're, so. We're very, very excited for it and uh, looking forward to our time there. We'll have one more show where we'll talk about these other things. And as I said, I hope that this conversation has done one thing, and that is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? Well, because Messiah matters. 